Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 45, a new installment of Linguafile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. I want to start off the show, Bob by reading a very brief but very sincere letter from a listener named Peter Lambusis. These are words of praise that I'm sure you'll appreciate. He said, I'm a 41-year-old man, and this is my first ever fan letter. I discovered Lexicon Valley via a friend about two months ago, and I've binge-listened to just about every episode in that time. Most of the listening occurs during my training runs for the upcoming New York City Marathon, so you've proudly displaced my Wilco Mood Beats and Lady Gaga remixes on my iPod. I have now become that guy that laughs out loud in public. That guy, in quotes, and a nod to our episode about demonstratives. It's a true joy to listen to you two gollocks talk with each other and get an education at the same time. Thanks, Pete. Well, isn't that nice? Yeah. And I have three things to say about it, Mike. One. First, that guy is a term that has come out of nowhere in the past, I think, six months to describe a caricature that people do not want to be. They don't want to be that guy who does fill in the blank. Oh, I think it's far older than six months. Okay. We're well, like 60 might, uh, years. They're investigating. Okay. The second thing is, it's unbelievable because Peter is a fan and we have so much in common because he's preparing for the marathon. And I ran one <laughs> mile in 1973, apparently the year of his birth, and I'm still coughing shit up. So... There's the whole athletics thing that we have going. If you had to talk about yourself as being in training for something right now, what would it be? Coma? How's the training coming? <laughs> it's going fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly losing cognitive ability, you know, pulling it out in clumps. So there's that. Do you have to wear cleats when you train for a coma? <laughs> I uh, I cross trainers. Okay. The third thing is Mike. Yeah. He likes us, right? He really likes us. And that means he likes some of me, right? Yeah. We'll I have the most fantastic news for him because now there is a way to get more of me. Uh, I think I know where this is going. I've listened <laughs> to a couple of these episodes. They're not yet out there in the world, but they're fantastic. Yeah. You've heard the pilot of... The Genius Dialogues. Yeah, a genius idea, by the way. Oh, you're very sweet. It's a couple of things. One is it's a multimedia publishing platform that a partner and I are devising, and it's audio, it's text, it's part ebook, it's part audiobook, it's got video, it's got stills. You can buy it by subscription, you can get it a la carte. So it's a whole new way of presenting something, and the particular thing that it is presenting is long-form conversations with winners over the past 20, 30 years of, of MacArthur so-called genius grants. Mm -hmm. Those people who you read about once a year getting this windfall. 
and uh, you seldom learn very much at all about their work and their fields, but what they do is freaking astonishing. And I am spending time talking with them, I mean, lots and lots and lots of time, and producing these kind of audiobook-length conversations. I hesitate to say interview because I don't do interviews like interviews. And the whole project is called The Genius Dialogues, which we have as a project on Kickstarter right now. Yeah, and the thing that I love about this idea is that for those who know about the MacArthur Genius Grants, these are awarded to you know people in the hard sciences, people in the soft sciences, people in the creative fields, poets, molecular biologists, public radio people. It's an amazing eclectic mix of people. Mm-hmm. Great achievers across the whole breadth of human endeavor. And some of the, the stories are just kind of, well, they're inspiring, they're surprising, they're... Uh, mind-bending. I mean, it's been quite an experience already, and we're just getting started. Yeah, and I just want to throw in a request. One of my favorite poets is the Canadian poet Anne Carson. She's a classicist as well, a scholar, and I would love, love, love to hear Anne Carson interviewed by you. Hmm. Well, I'm on it, you know, provided she's a good talker. That's the thing, you know. You can't talk to every MacArthur genius, because not everybody who is... A surpassing genius is someone who you want to listen to for an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, I'm working hard just to keep my own voice out of it because who wants to listen to me for very long? Uh, So it's a consideration. But I'm going to trust you that Anne is really a provocative speaker as well. Bob, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Have you learned nothing from a career in public radio? That's what editing is for. I mean, people don't know, but Ben Zimmer, that guy can barely get a word out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's like English isn't even his first language. Oh, I have to yeah, construct I know. him I know. word by word. He is so tongue-tied. It's, uh, I'm embarrassed for him. All right, let's bring him out. Hey, Ben, how you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. So we got a lot of mail about the Orange episode. A lot of people found it fascinating, had no idea the history of the word orange, the etymology of that word. Oros Harmon, who is sort of a super fan of Slate Podcasts, he said, it's a little mysterious to me that people get that question about orange wrong. I mean, can you think of another example where a word is a food and a color where the color came first? Salmon, strawberry, chocolate, mint, etc. They're (laughs) all obviously adapted from the food. So why would you expect orange to be the lone exception? None of those colors are as basic to our understanding of the words we have for colors as orange. Mint? Come on. No way. (laughs) Salmon? Yeah. You know, Mike, as as much as I hesitate to agree with you on anything, yes, (laughs) orange is a, uh, I guess you'd call it a secondary color, right? It's red and yellow Mm -hmm. in identical proportions. And these others are straining at trying to describe a fairly subtle tone. And the greatest example is to go through the paint chips mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at, at uh, the Home Depot <laughs> or whatever, where they go to very great lengths to describe the exact nature of the thing that isn't quite yellow or isn't quite orange or isn't quite green. This is where salmon came from. And I think also like tilapia. Laura and I, my wife, we did just that very recently because we've been painting in our house. A couple of the colors we have chosen are River Mist, and wild porcini. <laughs> because you know what? I have domesticated porcini on my wall, and it's just not right. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, you know, even more basic, but not quite as basic terms like pink or violet, mm-hmm. those are both flower names. We get other flower names for colors like lavender or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when I talked last time about the work by Brent Berlin and Paul Kay on basic color terms, they found that all of these things came sort of later generally in the development of color terms in languages, not just English. So it makes sense that we borrow words from plants or flowers or what have you to uh, name these latecomers. Mm-hmm. I guess it just surprises people that orange works that way too because it does feel so basic. We're all taught Roy G. Biv. R is for red, O is for orange, Y is for yellow, and G is for green. Now that goes back to Isaac Newton divvying up the color spectrum that way. He kind of cheated anyway. Indigo, not really a basic color. Isaac Newton actually needed seven for the color spectrum because he thought that seven had these mystical properties. It was related to seven notes on a scale and seven heavenly objects in the sky. He had all these theories about the number seven, and that's why we have those seven, what we think of as basic colors on the spectrum. So anyway, we think of orange as this basic thing, but it just hasn't always been that way. Would either of you fellows care for me to hum Mood Indigo by Duke Ellington right now? I'd, I'd be happy to. No, that's fine. You, Ben, are you good? (laughs) Well, I could go either way on that. How's Bob's humming on that? (laughs) My my mood, frankly, is a little more chartreuse right now. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. What's our word, or I guess what's our clue for today? Yes, let's start with the clue. I'm going to do a little bit of wordplay, but nothing too complex this time. This word's only five letters long. Hmm. And I can give you an anagram, but I'm not going to mix up the letters too much here. In fact, I'm just going to move one letter. So take a five-letter word that is a slang term, meaning informants. Move the last letter to the front of the word, and you will get the word that I want to talk about this time. Huh. I've got a six-letter word for informant and a four-letter word for informant. Wait, is it informant or informants? Informants, plural. Ah, okay. okay. So, Bob, what's your four-letter word for informant? Well, I got fink for four-letter. If I wanted to talk about sphink, then that would work, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the singular of sphinx? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're saying that Fink is the wrong direction. Is that what you're saying? You're on the right track there. Uh, yeah. It's not snitch. It's not rat, because that's only got three letters. Yeah. Maybe think of a police informant, if that helps. Okay, the word is narc. Narc, right. The plural is narcs. Move that mm-hmm. S to the front of the word, and what do you get? Snark. Nice work, Bob. Oh. Well done, well done. So snark, that's the word, and of course, snark means... Well, let's ask the king of snark. How would you define snark, Bob? Let me just start by saying it's a word that scarcely existed or maybe 15 years ago. And now it seems to describe a combination of opinionation and snideness and condescension and and lack of seriousness, kind of all of the above. Gawker, the website, is the apotheosis of snark, the glib finding fault with others. 
it almost sounds like a word that like Lewis Carroll would have made up. Funny you should mention Lewis Carroll. He actually wrote a wonderful extended poem called The Hunting of the Snark. Mm-hmm. So, I know that poem, so maybe that's why I thought of it. <laughs> that, would be, that would be true. So we have Lewis Carroll with his mythical creature of the snark in that 1876, The Hunting of the Snark. And then we've got the uh, more recent kind of snark that we get, as Bob defined it, that kind of opinionated and caustic and snide commentary. That meaning has become so prevalent and sort of burst on the scene relatively recently, just really around 2002, that a lot of people kind of speculate and try to figure out, you know, where did this come from all of a sudden? If you check Urban Dictionary, which is rarely right on such matters, (laughs) uh, you'll find someone claiming that snark actually is a shortened form of snide remark. You take the snuff from snide and the arc from remark, and you get snark. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's clever. Yes. A portmanteau is, in fact, a term that comes from Lewis Carroll, who liked making portmanteaus all the time. Those are words that combine two other words and combines their meanings in some way as well. Portmanteau being kind of a suitcase that comes in sort of two parts that you can fold together. And so the images of, of the word folding together and the two parts coming together that way. But snark is not a portmanteau for a snide remark. So any other guesses where snark might have originated from? I first heard it used only in its adjective form. That is snarky. What a snarky comment. And then the output of snarkiness came to be called snark. Now, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, the orange or the color, but uh, (laughs) my guess is that the adjective predated the noun. As for its etymology, there is a kind of onomatopoeic feel to the word. Well, you're definitely headed in the right direction, and Bob hit the nail on the head by saying that snarky, the adjective, predates our modern version of snark. Snark, as it emerged online mostly in the early aughts, is really derived from the adjective snarky, which has a much longer history back to the 19th century, meaning various things including irritable or short-tempered. Oh my gosh, she has been so snarky lately. I woke up this morning to learn that all the vampires have been released from the tomb. I've earned snarky. Snarky? Yeah, snarky, you know, from the uh, ancient Greek meaning butthead. So you had this adjective snarky, which actually came from an old verb meaning to find fault with or to nag. But then fast forward 100 years later, you get people using snark as what linguists call a back formation. The idea there is, well, we have this word snarky, and if we just take the Y ending off, which makes something an adjective, then we should have a noun. If you are snarky, then you are a purveyor of snark. It's called being nice, Miles. You should try it instead of hiding your insecurities behind your snark. A woman who speaks only in snark. Oh, how about citizen dickbag? Snark victory. And you can think of it as a mass noun rather than a count noun. Snark is like this sarcastic commentary, but you don't level a snark at someone, a snide remark. Mm -hmm. You just talk about snark in general as this quality or almost sometimes treated like a substance. Mm -hmm. Like a property. It's a property of somebody's commentary. Yeah. So this modern sense of snark kind of burst on the scene around 2002. And we can thank the website Television Without Pity for initially popularizing it, I think. 
because back in 2002, Television Without Pity grew out of these other sites where people were recapping TV shows in a particularly snarky fashion, starting with shows like Dawson's Creek back in the day. They became Television Without Pity with a kind of a devilish television logo and a motto underneath it that said, Spare the Snark, Spoil the Network. A play on the, <laughs> a play on the, the old Spare spoil the Rod, the Spoil child. the Child. Right. So these snarky recappers were definitely using snark quite a lot, both as a noun and a verb. Well, they may get credit for bringing the, the word into the digital age. But in a larger sense, it flourishes because of the digital age. Commentators, snide and otherwise, used to be you know, a rarefied elite. They were designated by the powers that be to be the people who uh, criticize, make fun of, and so forth. They were comedians. They were op-ed writers. But they were small in number. The Internet has allowed anybody to be snarky online. It's a function of the convergence, it seems to me, of postmodernism, the irony culture, and absolute individual access to an internet audience. The democratization of snark. The democratization of fault finding. <laughs> well, you know, snark has been obviously written about quite a lot as a concept, basically, or a practice. And the first real negative portrayal of snark came pretty early on in 2003, the first issue of the magazine, The Believer, included a piece by Heidi Julewitz where she talked about snark as an opportunity for a critic to strive for humor and to appear funny and smart and a little bit bitchy without attempting to espouse any higher ideals. David Denby, the New Yorker film critic, ended up writing an entire book in 2009 called Snark, It's Mean, It's Personal, and It's Ruining Our Conversation. <laughs> How Denby-ish. Yes. But more recently, Gawker, which, as Bob noted, is really ground central for snark, late last year ran a very long think piece by Tom Skoka, the Gawker editor, called On Smarm. It was uh, almost 9,000 words long, but it was a kind of a defense of snark and saying that what is uh, really the enemy here is smarm. So he sets up this opposition between snark and smarm. Smarm being ingratiating, insufficiently, gimlet-eyed what? Positivity that's kind of fake. And that kind of unctuous smarminess is what snark is really going after. And at least good snark does this in a way that opposes what he calls smarm. And I found the snark versus smarm argument interesting on a number of grounds, including etymological grounds, because that word smarm is actually formed in a very similar way to snark as a back formation. And just like snark, it actually starts off smarm as a verb. So if you could just go smarm elsewhere. Don't lie. Smarming round Trimble. Probably telling Tony to suck me too, you devious cunt. To smear, to make oily. And so from that you get the adjective Smarmy. Mr. Smarmy, so-called Adam Wilson, can call himself pragmatic until he's blue in the breath. The love interest is a smarmy braggart of the most obnoxious kind. If it wasn't for people like us, you wouldn't be able to walk around spouting your smarmy, silly, bloody half-baked ideas. And then eventually people take that word and create smarm to refer to this kind of unctuous, flattering quality 
just as people would later do with Snarky becoming Snark. Here's the wind-up, and there's the smarm. <laughs> All right, let's pause here briefly to talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers audio and video lectures taught by some of the best professors from some of the best universities. If you're listening to this podcast, then you clearly have an interest in language and, in particular, the English language. Well, there's a course called The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. It's taught by Ann Curzan. She's a professor of linguistics at the University of Michigan. She's been a guest on this show and she's wonderful. Curzan is a member of the American Dialect Society, and she talks in this course about how the Dialect Society chooses a word of the year at the end of every year, and how in 2000, it chose a word of the millennium, of the past 1,000 years. In fact, it was a word that Curzan herself recommended for consideration. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to listen to or watch The Secret Life of Words, which you can get right now using the URL thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon, and you'll get 80% off the original price. Of course, there are lectures across all disciplines, from art to history to physics. You can watch them or simply listen to them on your phone, your computer, in your car, and remember, the 80% off deal only applies to the secret life of words and is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to our discussion about the word snark. The issue for me has always been the level of gratuitousness. Way back in the, I don't know, 50s, Walter Kerr, the theater critic of the New York Times, talked about the temptation and the power to be able to make a cheap little joke that would entertain his audience and kind of inflate him, but lacking the rigor that the theater critic must bring to his subject. And as a critic myself, I've, for the last three decades, I've always had that in the back of my mind when I was about to turn a phrase that would be just so devastating but then had to decide whether I was just being gratuitously snide or whether I was actually serving the subject and actually mounting an argument. And snark too often, it seems to me, is criticism, gratuitous criticism, that lacks a rigorous underlying argument. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. And that's how Heidi Julevitz described it back in 03 in The Believer. And that's how David Denby kind of amplified it into this even more monstrous thing in 09. But, you know, well before Tom Skoka wrote his uh, long tract in Gawker about snark versus smarm, there were defenders of snark who really wanted to put it on a more elevated plane. So if you go back to 2003, there was a blog post by one of the Television Without Pity recappers, Pamela uh, Rybun, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, R-I-B-O-N, and she kind of responded to this idea of snark as having no substance. And she said it points out, in this case, she's, again, she's talking about recapping TV shows. It points out when the networks are treating you like a stupid child. You deserve more. And good snark shows that you're intelligent enough to ask for it, to call out for it, and to mock the shit they try to serve you instead. You should embrace the snark, demand better snark, and refuse to read bad snark. So snark done well, as television without pity often would do, demanded higher standards of network television. And 
that was something that was part of that democratization of criticism that Bob mentioned, where everybody could sort of chime in and get their own view out there. And if they were unsatisfied with the way a television show that they really like was going, they could register that. And in fact, Bob, I would argue that snark, unlike satire, say, does not necessarily pretend to mount an overarching argument. It serves more often than not, especially in the way that it's used online, to kind of puncture the self-importance of celebrity and celebrity culture. And if it serves just that purpose alone, then it doesn't need to create some other larger argument behind it. Perhaps so, but when they ran out of actual celebrities, let's talk about Gawker, they started defining celebrity down and began to pick out poor, innocent, anonymous citizens who had done something or said something stupid and just piled onto them, which demonstrated that it was the very, very self-serving and kind of unkind exercise in superiority mm -hmm. as opposed to any kind of substantive criticism. I mean, it was just like Gawker is a bunch of mean girls, or at least was. I, it seems to have moderated somewhat in last year or two. And when I hear the word snark, I take that as implicitly negative because it's just about negativity. For the initiated, at the expense of some outgroup or outperson, and I just, uh, the whole thing makes me queasy. I hear you. Truth be told. Ben, if I could just take this back to etymology for a moment. Snark is a back formation of snarky, but what is the root there? Where did the word come from? Well, it actually goes way back. You can find similar words in other Germanic languages, not with this meaning of finding fault with someone or nagging someone or annoying someone, but a word, a verb, snark, which actually meant to make a snorting or snoring sound. Both the words snark and snork were used this way, certainly in the 19th century in different dialects of English. Both of these words snark and snork were recorded. But they must go back quite a ways before that because we can find all of these cognates. That means basically cousins of those words that come from the same ancestral form. So we get snarken in Low German, snarka in Frisian and Swedish. And so there are all these sort of Germanic words which have to do with snoring or snorting or snarling or sneering. Do you see a little pattern developing here with all of these words? Yes, the S-N. And in fact, I suggested before that snark was somewhat onomatopoeic with the attitude, and it's certainly onomatopoeic with the sound that you might make from a snort. Exactly. Or a sniff. What are some other sna words that might fit in this category? Can you think of any more? Snuff. Snuff, okay. Snuff or snub. There are a lot of things that have to do with the nose, otherwise known as the snout. Mm. So noises that might come from the nose or other bodily functions that might come from the nose. We've got sneezing. Think also about snot. Mike, I believe you're quite familiar with snot these days, <laughs> thanks to Xander. Yeah, I have a 13-month-old who, for at least two or three weeks now, has, whenever we seem to turn around, has what my wife calls rivulets of snot running down his face. <laughs> yeah, so I'm we've very familiar with it. You know, with candle wax on a Chianti bottle, that's an attractive <laughs> image. With Xander's mucus, not so much. <laughs> So it's fascinating how many words fit this pattern that have to do with things involving the nose, sticking your nose in things. You might snoop around. You might put your nose up in the air if you're a snob. 
You might do something else kind of negative. You might snitch. You might snivel. You might be snide. You might be snooty. You might snicker. You might be snooty. You might snicker. You might snigger. Sneer. All of these things. Sneaky words that begin with S-N. This type of thing kind of fascinates some linguists who are interested in what's called sound symbolism. So when linguists talk about this, they often use a term that's called phonetheme. So you've probably heard of phonemes, which are the basic sounds of a language, and morphemes, which are the kind of basic building blocks of meaning. So to take an example, for instance, last time we talked about the word nabob-s. Well, that's a word that has two morphemes in it. It's got nabob and it's got ess as this kind of feminizing suffix to it. You could add another suffix at the end of it. You could make it plural, nabob-s's, and now you've got a word with three morphemes in it. Three units of meaning that build this word. Exactly. But something else seems to be going on with all these words beginning with sna. Because if you're talking about morphemes, you can break the word apart into different morphemes and say, this means this, this means that. But those words like snark, snarl, sneeze, snort, and all that, they have that sna, but the rest of it doesn't necessarily form, you know, its own unit of meaning. These words that get to attitude somehow are attached to the sna sound. It's an odd one. Do you have any idea why? This is a contentious point among linguists. Some linguists think that the whole idea of the phonus theme is just kind of silly. But you can point to certain ones that clearly something is going on. Another example of this is the gl sound that you would find in words like glisten, glimmer, glimmer, gleam, glitter. All shiny, lighty type words. Yeah, shiny, sparkly, reflected light. The problem is, though, people who go down this road into sound symbolism... They see it everywhere, or they try to come up with elaborate catalogs of all words and seeing where they fit into some big semantic scheme that we're only vaguely aware of, that we don't really think about, but it's hiding there. It can be very mystical, actually, this sort of a thought about languages having these kind of hidden meanings to it. You might just see a few words that have a shared meaning and a shared sound. So grab and nab and rob, and you think, okay, well, that B at the end of the word must form a phonus theme, and you start looking for other ones to fit the pattern. Well, it's, it's more or less unscientific unless, unless it is, right? Unless you can actually trace a kind of shared history, a common ancestor for all of these words. Yeah, well, you can certainly find roots that will account for some of the words. So, for instance, you know, we talked about the Germanic root that gives us snark and snork and snarl and sneer and snore and snort. All of those probably go back to a Germanic root, which in turn comes from a Proto-Indo-European root. So you can reconstruct these protoforms that give us a whole bunch of them. But it doesn't necessarily account for all of them. You can't explain it all by etymology. So something else seems to be happening here. Like all of these words beginning with sna, they seem very negative and often kind of disgusting, often derogatory. doesn't fit 100%. You could call something snug or snazzy, and that's good. That's positive. Maybe those more positive words could have existed, but because we have all these other kind of snarling words, they never really gain much traction, and only the negative ones catch on. And so then something like snark, when it comes down to us, sounds pretty negative and needs its defenders to explain why snark doesn't have to be so negative all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, coming back to where this all began with your quiz of the episode, you better hope that neither Mike nor I is a narc. <laughs> and why is that? Because right here, 
on this episode, you have been trading in morphemes. <laughs> okay, wait, but let's go back to NARC for a second, because there could be a little connection here to snark, even though it doesn't no, have the uh, sound. It's true, it's true. The adjective snarky that we were talking about, it seems to come from this older word to snark, which you know could mean to snort, but also to find fault with. But it's interesting that there was another word also dating back to the 19th century that also meant irritable, bad-tempered, kind of sarcastic. You could call that snarky or you could call it narky. Hmm. So some etymologists would say, well, maybe snarky actually comes from this other word, narky. Narky itself is nark plus that Y adjectival suffix. And a nark, going back to the 19th century, could mean a few different things. It could mean a kind of an annoying person. And then it could also mean an informer, which I like I used in the clue, a police informer, a copper's narc, as they would say in the 19th century. Later on, it got a bit conflated with this other kind of narc, N-A-R-C, to refer to a, a police agent who's involved with narcotics operations. But that word narc, we're not sure exactly where that comes from. One guess is that it comes from Romani, the gypsy language, language of the gypsies, which had a word nok, meaning nose. And you can think of the way that the word nose could be used as an informer, someone who's poking their nose into things. But, 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 but isn't it just a coincidence? Because narc in its current usage relates directly to narcotics, and it's the narcotics squad that is investigating these... No, but he's talking about the NARK version, Bob. Right. The NARC came later, and because of the coincidental resemblance, those two things have become joined in people's imaginations. Mm. And so you see both spellings to refer to <laughs> these meanings. The shortening of narcotics to narc to refer to police agents or investigators dealing with narcotics only goes back to the 1960s. 1966, I think, is the earliest one. So we have narky and snarky both sort of coming out, and it's still unclear exactly how these things are related. We had all of those snow words that might have been playing a role in people's understanding of what snarky means, but then you get a little assistance from this other very similar word, narky, which is just snarky without the S, having this meaning that might have played some sort of role in influencing the development of its meaning. In other words, those similar German words that you mentioned earlier, those may not necessarily be whence snark came. It could be through this narky route, or it could be some sort of combination of both. It could be a combination. I mean, this is not a tidy etymology at all. There could be multiple influences going on. It doesn't have to be one simple root from, you know, an earlier form to a later form. There could be lots of different things at play in this one word. And all of these words that share this phonus theme, this SN, are vaguely related to the nose, to a kind of sneering, sniffling, uh, some sort of notion of nasality, in a sense. That seems to be at the heart of it. And then you have, you know, other words that, again, have to do with things that are nasty in some way or disgusting. And they could be sounds or they could be attitudes or movements and things like that, which all kind of fall into that pattern. Mm -hmm. So it makes you think, actually, what did Lewis Carroll mean when he created this name for his imaginary Creature. The rest of my speech, he explained to his men, you shall hear when I've leisure to speak it. But the snark is at hand, let me tell you again, tis your glorious duty to seek it. We don't have a good explanation for where 
Lewis Carroll got snark from. But there was a writer named Beatrice Hatch who wrote an article about Lewis Carroll in the Strand magazine in 1898, and she knew him personally. And she says that Carroll told her once that snark is a portmanteau word that combines snail and shark. Lewis Carroll was adamant about not picturing this snark in any way. He wanted to sort of keep it mysterious about what it was and what it looked like. So we don't really know, actually. Another suggestion is, well, you combine snarl and bark and you get snark. And then others have looked at these older forms of snark going back to the Germanic roots to suggest, well, maybe this was kind of feeding into Lewis Carroll's imagination as well. Or perhaps snipe, which I understood was a, a mythical bird or something that would be used to send gullible fools out on, on you know, wild snipe chases. You're not going to believe this, but uh, <laughs> Diane there just attempted to tell me that there's no such thing as a snipe. They will say anything. It'll keep me at home. <laughs> Diane, I promise you, you will not become a snipe widow. <laughs> All right, I'm in. Let's go get one. To the woods! Clearly, this snark name that he came up with had a lot of resonance with other terms that might have sounded similar. It's interesting, Lewis Carroll, actually, the last line of this long poem came to him first. For the snark was a boojum, you see. He got that line in his head, and then he had to figure out how to get to that, how to, how to make that make sense in his story. And so he builds this story about 10 people trying to hunt the snark, which might turn out to be this very dangerous kind of a snark called a boojum, which would make you softly and suddenly vanish away if you came across it. And in the end, they discovered that, in fact, yes, the snark was a boojum, you see. So, Ben, do you think that this unresolved etymology of the word snark is one that's likely to persist? Is there any hope that we can solve it definitively, or is it just going to remain a mystery? I think there will always be an element of mystery to it. Uh, we just have to sort of conjecture based on words that we know about that might have contributed to its meaning. But I'm okay with that. I mean, not every etymology has to tell this nice, clean story. This one is a little messy, but, you know, I think that's fitting for a word like snark. Yeah, I think you're right. But, you know, there's a vast undiscovered fossil record out there. You never know what we'll uncover. That's very true. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Ben Zimmer is executive producer of Vocabulary.com and a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. You can find out more about the word snark on his Word Roots column at Vocabulary.com. So, Bob, you know, there's one thing that I'm surprised that you didn't bring up in the course of this conversation about the word snark, and mm -hmm. that is that in, oh, I don't know, 2000. 2004, maybe, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, an opinion piece, written about On the Media, and you and Brooke Gladstone, the brilliant co-host of On the Media, calling you guys, I think, snarky. Is that right? Oh, yeah, the Wall Street Journal piece. Yeah, we've had uh, a handful of uh, hit pieces done <laughs> that uh, you know we didn't necessarily regard it as uh, serious criticism and more politically inflected, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think they did call us snarky, and it's not entirely untrue, but, you know, as I say, I tend to think of snark as more gratuitous, and I don't think all commentary, even if it's caustic, is of necessity snark. Mm. I'm thinking of one of my favorite all-time Bob Garfield 
essays, I guess you'd call it, on, on the media, it was when Attorney General John Ashcroft was leaving office, and you did a kind of farewell to him, weaving throughout music from The Sound of Music. It was just brilliant. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember it. Oh. Okay, that was snarky. Okay, good. <laughs> so long, farewell, <laughs> our Vieters ain't... Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, perhaps a bit over the top. I was a little peeved with Attorney General Ashcroft for his role in depriving... Americans of basic civil liberties in the panic of the post 9-11 era. Yeah. So, and in uh, that piece, yeah. by the way, if you got to seek this out online, it's absolutely genius. In that piece, I think you refer to uh, UPS workers as brown shirts because they were enlisted in the effort to... Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't believe... Oh, Mike, you're so kind and I'm so old. I remember none of this. All right, well, if you want to check out that on the media piece, it is called The Sound of Ashcroft. If you want to get in touch with us here at Lexicon Valley, you can do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. You can search for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store and give us a rating and a review. Check out Bob's Kickstarter page for the Genius Dialogues. It's a fantastic idea. Go there and pledge some money. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey, we done here? Yep, we are done. Later, Gator. The dogs were barking as the cars were parking. The lone sharks were sharking and the narks were narking. Practically everyone was there. In the parking lot by the forest preserve.